Hello and welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast. Brought to you by Biotechniques, this show brings you the latest from the frontiers of the life sciences, straight from the people exploring them. I'm your host, Biotechniques digital editor Tristan Free, and in this episode, supported by Biorad, we'll be discussing a key component of many gene therapies, recombinant adeno-associated viruses, or RAAVs for short. Specifically, we'll be exploring some of the key challenges associated with their production process, the techniques available to address them, and some of the most exciting developments in the gene therapy space. Lending their significant expertise in this topic is Mark White, Associate Director of Biopharma Product Marketing at Biorad Laboratories. Hi, Mark. It's great to have you on the podcast. Hey, Tristan. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Coming up, find out what makes RAAV so useful in gene therapies. I think what's really driven them into the clinic, the reason they've had success is that they're quite accurate. They have very, very low off-target recombination events, and they're really non-pathogenic. Get an insight into the pros and cons of different expression systems. It's easier and less expensive to produce an SF9, but because you're producing in an insect cell, you have to be more careful about kind of what carries over, especially DNA and protein. Although DNA for ATK carryover is also another issue that is a big part of the production process that needs to be closely monitored. And assess the scale of the challenge that faces gene therapy developers. And we've got 7,000 diseases we've linked to genetic defects. And in development, we really only have about 500 therapies. So firstly, Mark, to give a very brief overview, so gene therapy generally involves the delivery of a gene to a target tissue to combat a condition or disease that's preventing a patient from successfully producing that product of that gene independently. But what are RAVs and how are they involved in this process? Yeah, so like you said, with gene therapies, we're attempting to correct, in general, a defective gene. And so in order to do so, we need to deliver some type of machinery to help do that. And usually it's in the form of a single-stranded piece of DNA that has the correct gene, although there's other variants of it. And so with RAAVs, it's really been an evolution, I would say, over many, many years of kind of attempted gene therapies with various different types of viral vectors to deliver these genes. And the field has really kind of settled on RAAVs as a great platform to do that. They're single-stranded DNA. They're about 4.7 KB long, so they can deliver a, a decent-sized payload, or and the payload being the DNA. And I think what's really driven them into the clinic, the reason they've had success is that they're quite accurate. They have very, very low off-target recombination events, and they're really non-pathogenic. And so because of that non-pathogenicity, it's really become, like I said, a desirable platform for delivering genes. Okay, so if the gene is the active component of the therapy, the RAV is the envelope that's delivering it into the cell. That's right. Perfect. And what are the main sort of manufacturing process used to produce these recombinant adeno-associated viruses? There's a couple of key steps. The first is actually developing a plasmid to make your gene of interest and allow it to be packaged into the adeno-associated virus. And so a manufacturer would have to make that plasmid, put it into cells and expand those cells and then purify that plasmid back out. And that's kind of the starting place. And then that plasmid is transfected into the viral vector production cell line, along with some other helper plasmids. And that virus producing cell line is in many cases, HEK-293, a human kidney cell, cell line that's widely used for production of these viral vectors. And then 
those cells grow and divide and produce a lot of virus. And then we have to purify that virus away from those helper cells and formulate and fill and finish into something that can be directly injected into a human being. In a lot of cases, these gene therapies are injected into the eye for ocular therapies or other routes within the body to try and target the cells of interest that have this defective gene. What is it that makes those kidney cells so well adept to this process? What's the benefit of using them? Why are they so popular? That's a funny thing. So what ends up happening in the field is back in the day, somebody decided to use them because most likely they're they're easy to grow. The cell culture media was probably pretty cheap and they're pretty ubiquitous and they were able to produce a large amount of vector. And so over 15, 20 years as the field evolved and they were used for those features, although there's probably other cell lines that can do the same thing. At one point, they got approved by the FDA for use. And so once that happens, anybody coming along behind it is going to say, well, I could use this better cell line, but that one's been approved. And so it's lower risk. I'm just going to use that HEK cell line, right? So there's a lot of examples where we have things in, in production that maybe aren't as optimal as they could be, but the risk is low because they've been approved before. So that's part of the story why HEK has become such a powerhouse cell line. And then what ends up happening is a whole industry builds up around that. And so there's people that produce those cell lines and sell them. And there's serum-free medias that can go into actual therapeutic production. And so this kind of whole infrastructure builds up around one cell line and it kind of gets locked in for a while. So SF9 insect cells are an alternative type of cell that's used to produce viral vectors. And some therapies are made with those, but not anywhere near the same level as HEK cells. Okay. So if these are the, they've kind of become the standard by default as they were kind of the first things to do it. What are some of the other expression systems available that people use to produce RAAVs? To be honest, I don't know of many others besides the SF9 insect cells. There's not a lot. And I think, again, it's scientists. There's so much failure in science, right? There's so many ways that it can go wrong that if it goes right for somebody, generally we grasp onto that and try and repeat it exactly and just keep going. And so I'm sure there's people are probably cringing that know all about some alternatives, but there are lots of variants of the HEK cell line over the years that have been produced where they've knocked out genes or knocked in genes to try and make them more stable or make them grow faster, produce more. So there's a lot of variants of the HEK cell line, but I'm not aware of too many others besides HEK and SF9. And so what are the kind of differences then between the insect cell lines and the HEK cell lines? Is it a very similar process that you would use for both of them? It's pretty similar. I think the pros for HEK is that you're creating a viral vector within a human cell. And so in theory, that may have a little bit lower immunogenicity if there's any carryover of any of the proteins from that cell, for example, right? If you have a human protein carrying over versus an insect protein, that insect protein is going to kick off your immune system more. That's one of the big differences. The SF9s are far easier to grow. The media is cheaper. I'm not sure, but I believe they produce more viral vector. So the upside is you, it's easier and less expensive to produce an SF9, but because you're producing in an insect cell, you have to be more careful about kind of what carries over, especially DNA and protein. Although DNA for ATK carryover is also another issue that is a big part of the production process that needs to be closely monitored. You've touched on it there, then that kind of carryover of unwanted molecules into the, the final product. What are some of the key challenges of the development of these RAVs and gene therapies? Like I kind of alluded to, carryover of DNA, protein, and other 
parts of the process into the final fill finished dose, which is literally going to be injected directly into a human being. You have to be really careful about everything that those HEK cells have been exposed to. And as you're purifying the AAVs, you want to get down to a pure AAV that has your gene of interest payload and not some empty AAV or some partially loaded genome or some weird piece of DNA from the host cell, which can happen. And so you have to monitor all of those contaminants really well. And the FDA cares a lot about those contaminants and wants to see really well-developed process and plans and assays for how you're checking to make sure that you're minimizing. And I use minimizing very explicitly because there's no way to get rid of everything. You just want to minimize the dose of these kind of contaminants and make sure that you're down below a level that we've proved to be safe. And just to clarify, is it that these host DNA fragments or contaminants are being carried through within sort of enclosed within the capsid of the RAAV, or are they also kind of free floating in the final product solution? It's both. That is the challenge. And so we call the two flavors nuclease sensitive and nuclease insensitive. And so you imagine if you have a viral capsid and there's host cell DNA stuck to the outside because DNA is very sticky, you've exploded these host cells to get the virus out. It's going to be everywhere. And adding a nuclease should cut up all the DNA that's outside the viral capsid. And so that's what we call the nuclease sensitive process impurity. The nuclease resistant product impurity would be a host cell piece of DNA that actually got packaged into the virus. So it's protected by that viral capsid and the nuclease can't get to it. And so what's really critical is having really good process development to minimize both forms and a very accurate, sensitive and fast method to track that DNA. What our customers would do is take, we have an HEK specific assay for quantification of the DNA, as well as kind of looking at the size of it. And so a lot of times they'll measure HEK early in the process without doing any cleanup. Then they'll do a nuclease digestion of the viral capsid kind of pool to cut up all the free floating DNA. And then they'll measure it again to see how much did I decrease that total amount of contaminating DNA. And then a lot of times they'll take that and lice the whole thing, lice all the capsids and see how much is in there. Those three measurements will give you kind of how much you start with, and then what fraction is outside the capsid versus packaged inside the capsid. Most of the DNA tends to be on the outside. Not a lot gets packaged. Again, minimizing the risk, there's an acceptable amount of DNA that can get through that we've shown is safe. But measuring that really accurately, quantifying it, and making sure it's below a certain threshold per dose, really that's the FDA's guidelines, is ensure that you have 10 nanograms or less of DNA per dose. And also that on average or in median or whatever, the size is below 200 base pairs. So even if it's getting through, it's so small that it's probably not going to be a whole oncogene or something like that, which is what the big risk is that we're and our customers are worried about when treating patients. So that's the main damage that could potentially be done if these aspects aren't removed is introducing oncogenes or sections of DNA that might produce a product that could be harmful to the tissue that they're being injected into. Yeah, it's, I mean, really for the nuclease sensitive DNA, which is the free floating DNA, it's really about genotoxicity. So if you put a large amount of just DNA in there, could it have an issue in inducing a negative effect in the genome itself, oncogenes being the big worry. And for the 
nuclease-resistant DNA, there's a genotoxicity issue that we would be worried about and the FDA is worried about of if you get a piece of an oncogene or a whole oncogene in there, it could drive a tumor, which is really what drives the size restriction that has been set, but also just immunotoxicity. So if you have a fragment that produces a protein that looks foreign in that cell at potentially high amounts, that can create some immunotoxicity. And especially if you're working with the SF9 cells, the insect cell lines. That's kind of the main risks that have been identified. Fortunately, with the current process, that seems to be highly minimized and there's not a lot of cases of host cell DNA being a big issue. Do you have any kind of key tips or key sort of best practices that you need to follow to minimize the carry through of these products or these unintended products? And is there a difference in how you would apply that to the HEK cells or and how you'd apply it to the insect cells? It's an interesting question. To answer the second one, First, I don't know the big differences because most of our experience and most of the customers we work with are focused on ATK cells. That'd be a good one to dig into. But in our opinion, and, and I think the reason our customers have pulled in the assays that we have for AGK, if you're trying to get rid of something and minimize it and get it down to a very low level, and you're trying to prove to the FDA that you've done that, you need the best known method. The FDA is really pushing everybody to use the best known method of quantification, because if you can't measure it accurately, then you're going to have a hard time convincing the FDA that your process is good. So if you have a good, accurate measurement, then you can do your process development to minimize the amount of DNA. There's two key steps in the process development that really remove a lot of this contaminating DNA. It's really that first kind of cell lysis step goes into an endonuclease digestion. So really you're trying to cut up every piece of DNA that's in there that came from the genome of that host cell. And you're really relying on the fact that viruses are pretty tough and that they won't pop open during that stage. And then later on, there's a process development step or a process where our customers try to separate empty or less full capsids from full capsids. And there's a variety of different methods to do that. And so if your DNA that's getting packaged is fairly small, then those hopefully you can purify away those types of viral vectors. But the nuclease-resistant DNA is much harder. It's more insidious to get rid of, but it's also at a much lower level. And so generally people are focused on just getting rid of the extra virus or the DNA outside the virus. So we do a lot of droplet digital PCR. And one thing about process development for AAV, especially at this early kind of lysis step or lysate step before there's a lot of purification, there's a lot of stuff in that lysate. There's surfactants, there's blown up cells, there's a lot of junk in there. And what's really nice about a droplet digital PCR method of quantification of either the amount of host cell DNA or the size is that DDPCR is highly resistant to inhibitors. And so you don't have to clean up as much. If you were doing a qPCR-based test, you'd have to clean every single sample before you test it. And there's losses involved with that and other things. And so being able to do simple dilutions and go right into droplet digital is really why it's really been strongly pulled into this process. So essentially you can take a small sample of your, <laughs> your end product and just run it straight through DDPCR and then yeah. you can get your quantification of, of how much contaminant is in there. Yes. So the nice thing about droplet digital is you can do it at the end where it's highly pure. So there's basically like salt, a little bit of buffer, maybe a little bit of protein in your viral capsids. That's the easy one to measure. It's upstream at the beginning when you're first lysing the host cells 
that it's really difficult to measure accurately unless you purify it with qPCR. But with Droplet Digital, simple dilution and you're into Droplet Digital. And so the nice thing about that is that you have one method that goes from the nastiest, crudest lysates all the way to the end that you're using and you're getting accurate precise results across that whole continuum of sample types. So you can actually compare them to each other and say, yeah, I did drastically reduce it by doing my endonuclease step. And then when I do my purification for mostly full capsid, I reduce it even further, right? And so you can actually track that through your process. Is that first initial DD-PCR, is that informing then how much of the, or how concentrated the endonuclease wash would be and that kind of information? Or is it, would you just apply the same thing each time and just double check it at each stage to see that it's worked? Both. So it's the starting point you have and you can calculate we're starting with whatever micrograms of DNA per dose, essentially equivalent. And then you want to get down to 10 nanograms per dose or less. And so it is helping with process development. So doing a design of experiments to find what endonuclease amount should we add for this way that we've produced, right? And so everybody has their favorite way of maximizing production of their vectors and their own flavor of HEK that might have some special sauce that makes it produce more virus. And so it's really important to kind of track in that early stage to lock the process and develop the process. And then once it's locked, then you're monitoring through the process a lot of times to make sure that at each stage it's working as expected. Sometimes you have to change the lot of the exit nuclease that you're using, right? And so having a really accurate measurement that you can use on lot one and lot two, compare them to each other. Do we get the same level? Do we have to tweak lot two to make it more or less active? Something like that. It's used many ways throughout the entire development and then and then QC processing when it's in full production. And it's the same assay. It's the same instrument. It's used in all cases for us because we have both of the instruments that are used routinely, the QX1, which is our high throughput instrument, and the QX200 AutoVG. They're 21 CFR compliant, which is really important for our QC customers who are trying to show the FDA, yeah, we checked all the boxes. It's low. Here you go. We proved it. So having the same instrument being used in the entire process just helps streamline everything and then minimizes the amount of development that has to happen. And now we're seeing, you know, most people started with Droplet Digital and and these instruments on just quantifying the viral vector genome itself. What's the therapeutic dose that we're giving to patients? Because that's the most important attribute to get right. And now they're starting to add more and more of the QC steps onto the same platform because it's there and it's great. And they're like, well, why don't I do all my PCR-based tests on Droplet Digital? And so that seems to be the migration of the field now. So, sorry, I just have a slight block in my head. If you've got the, so both the nuclease-resistant DNA and then also your actual target DNA is is within that capsid, and there's very little preparation step between taking your sample and running it through that DDPCR, how is that technology accessing those strands of DNA if they're within the viral capsid? So a lot of times we do a heat lysis in the beginning. So we'll put the crude lysate in there with the intact viral capsid, and then we blow it up with heat right before we start. And then it unlocks all the nuclear. And it can distinguish between what's been locked in the viral capsids and what's been just free floating nuclease reactive. Yeah. So if you do untreated lysate and then exonuclease treated lysate, you'll see a big drop So let's say there's 100 units, just arbitrary units before endonuclease, and then there's 10 after, then you know that that 90 units was most likely exonuclease sensitive DNA on the outside of the variant. Okay, and then you do the heat lysate, the heat lysation step. 
and then yeah so you're, you're actually measuring the total amount but the key step is you have before exonuclease and after so that's the difference fantastic okay bro well thank you very much for explaining that to me um no so in terms of the kind of latest developments in RAV technology, what are some of the developments you've seen recently in the last year or so that are most exciting to you? We're all trying to make the world a better place and seeing success in the clinic is really what it's all about. Seeing therapies get through review and show a clinical effect and really are helping patients and the partners that are on this journey with us to try and treat these diseases is the most exciting thing to me. And so I was at the American Society for Cell and Gene Therapy Conference just a couple months ago in Washington, D.C., and Francis Collins gave this really inspiring talk about all the success we've had over decades. I mean, this has been a really long process, and we've got 7,000 diseases we've linked to genetic defects. And in development, we really only have about 500 therapies. So I mean, the fact that we have 500 going is, is amazing and awesome. And there's the fact that some of them are getting approved and going on market is incredible. But there's a big task ahead for the whole field, including us who provide methods and tools for the therapy developers to make it faster, better, and cheaper. So right now it's quite expensive to deliver a gene therapy. In order to go from 500 to all 7,000, it has to be different. And this has been done before. Antibody development started the same way. It was really expensive for the first few. And then the whole weight of the industry gets behind it across the board. We make everything faster, better, and cheaper and really drive it to be kind of more routine and, and more optimized, more consistent. And so that's happening in the 10 years or so I've been involved with the field from where it started to now is the incredible pace of innovation that's happening. And again, it's across the board. It's the instruments that are helping people produce and characterize viral vectors, which we're involved with. It's the therapy developers coming up with new and creative ways to make more virus or make better viruses. All of that is happening so fast. That's what's so exciting to me. It's such a dynamic field to be in as well, that it's super fun for me to be involved in. I'm sure that's why many people are involved with the field. If you were in your lab and you came across a genie in a bottle, who could grant you a wish or a change to recombinant adeno-associated viruses to make them increase their utility and perhaps to drive forward that use to get us to that 7,000 therapeutic applications as opposed to 500 currently in development. What would it be? What would you ask for from the genie? I think one of the most important things that the field needs is the ability to have a different RAAV for every single cell type and subcell type within the human body. So you go and say, I need to target this, you know, retinal cell within this one type of retinal cell within the, the eye. And you know that this capsid is the one that's going to only target that cell and absolutely nothing else. Because a lot of times we want to make sure that we're delivering the gene to just that cell type and not some other cell type in a lot of cases. Sometimes we want to hit every single cell in the body that but in general, we're usually trying to target one type of cell. And so having that list and on-the-shelf library of cell type-specific RAVs, I think, is a key goal for the field. And we're working on it, right? Not we, the royal we. The field is working on it. There's some really incredible companies. Some are highly focused on, if they're like focused on heart disease, they're trying to make an RAV for every single type of cell in, in the heart. And then there's others that are taking a more systematic approach and a wider ranging approach to basically build that library. So that was another part of the conference we were at. There's quite a few companies talking about 
and academics as well, developers of these therapies talking about that issue and, and it's happening. It's I expect over the next five to 10 years, that'll yield to effort. What's the approach to try and deliver that set of targeted separate vectors? Is it kind of surface proteins that are only specific to certain types of cells or surely that must kind of run out after a while in terms of getting it as specific as you need it to be? Yeah, so right now there's different flavors of our, our AAV. So AAV2, 5, 8, 9, they, they each kind of have a cell type they seem to prefer. And that's largely through, I think, just normal evolution. And so the first step in this process, which the field's been going after for some time, has been to just characterize the ones that we know about and we have. And I think what's happening now is creating synthetic versions, right? And driving them either through AI or through directed evolution to target a specific cell type and not others. And so that's really about tweaking the surface of the viral capsid to make sure it hits one cell type and not another. Okay, fantastic. Well, Mark, I think that's all of my questions. It's been really fascinating to hear about, I mean, the utility of DDPCR and kind of improving these systems and monitoring your contamination levels and things like that. And then also to hear about those therapies making their way through approval at the moment. And we're, I think, I'm sure everyone will be very excited to see the next sort of round of approvals and, and what comes out and what can be actually be treated using these gene therapies. It'd be interesting to see how the field does in terms of developing those targeted capsids. Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Were there any last closing points that you'd like to make? It's a great field to be involved with. I'm a technology geek and especially a biotechnology geek and seeing us harness the power of what was a virus that may have had a, a negative effect on human condition and redirect it to help patients and our partners that unfortunately have some of these genetic diseases is just inspiring and exciting. And also seeing everybody work together towards this common goal to really drive change and drive therapies into the clinic. It's just, it's fun to be a part of and fun to talk about as well. So thank you for having me on the podcast today. Yeah, it's, it's nice to see it as a, it's almost like a superhero film with turning your weakness into a strength. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, the Batman of the life sciences. So yeah, thanks very much for coming on the podcast, Mark. It's been great to speak to you. You as well, Tristan. Excellent. Well, if you'd like to find out more about our AAVs for cell and gene therapies, check out our InFocus over on www.biotechniques.com. Thanks for listening and goodbye.